Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor. I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta. For our November episode, myself, Rachel Sherlock and Owen Molloy are joined by author Una Breen, who alongside Philip Smith had a new book out this month, Law of Charities in Ireland. Welcome to the show, Una. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's it, lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. Um, I suppose maybe you could just start by giving our listeners a brief overview of yourself and the work that you do. Uh, my day job is as a professor of law at the Sutherland School of Law at UCD. Um, my area of expertise includes equity and trusts, and more importantly and more excitingly for me, it includes NGO law, governance and social change, which means I get paid to focus on the law of charities. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a, it's been a really fascinating experience kind of going through the process of marketing this book. It's really opened my eyes to how many different areas of charities and NGOs there are in, in Ireland. Charities and NGOs are everywhere. If you think about it, according to Benefax, there are nearly 30,000 non-profits in Ireland. Of those, one third are registered charities. So in every town, in every society, in every village, you'll have a non-profit, you'll have a charity, which means you have lots of volunteers, you have lots of charity trustees, lots of people who want to do good and maybe just need a little bit of help in doing the best that they can so they stay on the right side of the law and more importantly, so that they achieve their charitable mission. It's so pervasive in, in society, that's so interesting. And do you, do you find it a, an interesting area to research? Obviously, you've written the book in it now. Um, so, I have been fascinated by the regulation and governance of charities for years. And I've been very lucky in my research um, because I've had the opportunity to work with charity regulators here in Ireland, with charity regulators in the UK and Scotland and in England and Wales. I've worked with the regulator in New Zealand and the regulator in Australia. So I have an opportunity to see how charity law works in lots of countries. And the really interesting thing we find, even though every country is different, every country has its own laws, every country has charities, is that we often have very similar problems. So we have generic problems that we're all trying to solve, whether it is what's the best way to regulate fundraising or how do we make sure that we don't have some rogue out scamming you on Grafton Street on a Saturday, that the money goes for a good cause. Exactly. So it's, it's a very kind of, I don't want to say happening area of law, but there's a lot of contemporary legislation. Sorry, because you know, from my background as a student, uh, when I saw charities law now, I thought charitable trusts and statutory uses and reworts library and you know, I hadn't realised how much modern legislation there, legislation there was in this area. So I suppose, did you find you had a lot to, to tackle with this book? Well, Phil and I began this project jointly when the Charities Act was introduced. So we had a new Charities Act in 2009. Now, in 2009, the president signed it into law, but we were just on the cusp of the recession and there was no money to bring it into force. So it sat on a shelf 
but wasn't in force for another five years. So we started to write about the area, but we had to wait for the law to catch up because you can't write about a statute (laughs) and about how it's implemented if it isn't actually in force at the time. So this has been a a labour of love uh, for the last decade. Uh, Phil is a partner and head of charity and pensions law in Arthur Cox. So he comes at it from a very professional um, expertise uh, perspective. I'm researching it on a comparative basis. And as I said, I work in the policy arena here in Ireland and abroad. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to combine practice and policy together as we research this book. That's very interesting. And did you find, uh, I suppose, what was the most difficult aspect of writing the book, apart from the, you know, the dragging the feet over commencement of the legislation? I think one of the difficult things when you're entering into an area where there isn't an existing book is deciding what to put in, because there's it's a blank field. There's so many things. If you think about if you are a a trustee of a charity on a daily basis, you could have so many different questions that pop up. What's the best way for us to distill the law down so that you have a handbook you can open and find the answers to your problems? It might be a governance problem one day. It might be a problem with how you manage your volunteers another day. It might be a funding issue a week later. What if your grant doesn't come through? Can you still run your charity if you have no money? It might be that over time you have mission drift and you can't fully give effect to the purpose for which you're set up. These are really big questions. And the good people who run charities don't necessarily know the answers off the shelf to those questions themselves. So we wanted to try and put a little bit of order on an area where there was nothing. And that was the hard part. It certainly sounds very difficult, but you can see why a handbook for this area would be very useful for all those people that you mentioned who work in in this area. Yeah, I was going to say that I think it's an interesting choice to make it a handbook and make it a bit more accessible and make it, because uh, we were saying just before we started recording that, it's, it, I think it's kind of ubiquitous among charities that if you're working in one, you're usually doing a couple of different jobs and wearing a bunch of different hats and trying to manage lots of different things that you may or may not have experience in or qualifications in, that you're doing it out of uh, more kind of altruistic motives a lot of the time. And uh, yeah, to create a book that's more practical and, and, and follows the life cycle of a charity um, from like beginning to end is just I thought I thought it was it, it was really interesting um, but well, that's actually one of the challenges because given both of our day jobs we're used to speaking to professionals in a particular way whether it's the accountants or the tax people or the lawyers and we, we wanted to engage their interest but we also very much wanted to speak to the normal people who run charities so Finding a way, when we go back to Owen's question about challenges, to try and hit both of those aims, that there's something for everybody, was both one of the challenges of the books, but also one of the really exciting things. Because with each draft, you thought, oh, I know another way I can say that. That will hopefully hit a couple of nails on the head. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, So I I suppose one kind of very layman question I had when I saw this book is, how would one go about setting up a charity in Ireland? Is there a defined process? That's a really good question because I would probably preempt that with an even earlier question, which is do you need to set up a charity for what you want to do? So when we think of why all these good people come together in Ireland, it's normally over a cause. Maybe there's been an accident. 
maybe it's an environmental issue. Uh, maybe there's a shortage of services in your area where it's either not funded by government or the private sector is too expensive. You're looking for that third way, the third sector. And charities are often set up to fulfill those needs. You might not need to set up a charity. If you look on the register of charities, there may already be a charity that's doing what you need done. And you might be better throwing your weight behind that body to start with. Maybe what you're doing is really good, a great idea, but not a charitable purpose. And so you might use a non-profit which undergoes less regulation. You don't have to file with the charity regulator every year, so it might be a much easier way to run your organisation. But if you're determined to set up a charity, if that's what you really want to do, we look at what are the key criteria for doing that? What is the charity test? And then to decide what vehicle will you use? What legal structure would best accommodate your needs at this stage of your organisation? Do you need a company? Would a trust be better? What about a simple unincorporated association that you could sit down at your kitchen table and write the rules tonight? Would that be sufficient for your needs and aims? So it's a little bit of a longer answer to your, your very good question. A typical lawyer would say it all depends on <laughs> what are you trying to do? And once we have a better sense of the reason right. you want to do good, then we can help to set it up properly. I think as I often used to say in exam questions, you know, we need to clarify this issue further with the client before <laughs> continuing on with this problem question. Uh, you mentioned there that uh, a little bit about the regulation that goes in around charities and exactly how are charities governed in Ireland? So since 2014, we have the Charities Regulatory Authority and this is the chief regulatory agency for charities. If you think of the charity regulator, it's like the gateway to registration. If you pass the test and the charity regulator says, yes, you have charitable status, you go on the register of charities. And that's a very big privilege because it means you can call yourself a charity in Ireland. And we know that word has great import with people. They're much more generous if they think that you're a charity in the first place. It also means you're eligible to apply for tax exemption charitable tax exemption so that if you're getting um, income or corporate donations that you're not going to be paying tax on those donations. So there, there's a great upside and great privileges that come with it. But because you get those privileges there's also more regulation. So if you are a charitable company you'll have to be registered with the CRO, the uh, company's registration office, because you're a company but you'll also have to be registered with the charity regulator and you'll have to file your annual report every year and show how you've achieved your charitable purposes. So the Charities Act 2009 is our starting point when it comes to how our charities regulated. The regulator has been giving effect to the provisions of that act and has been producing over the last five years more guidance some might say more rules <laughs> that charities have to follow. And is there much of a difference in how not-for-profits are governed compared with charities? Or... Well, there is, yeah. because you can set up a not-for-profit as a company limited by guarantee, or you could set up a trust or an unincorporated association. 
if it doesn't have a charitable purpose, it doesn't require registration, which means you then don't have to engage with the charities regulator. If it's set up as a company, you'll still have to file your annual returns with the CRO, but you're quite free as a non-profit to do things which some charities are more restricted from doing. So let me give you an example. If you are a charity, you, can, you are not able to engage as freely in commercial activities as a non-profit would be able to do. You won't be able to be set up for advancement of human rights, for example, because it's not a charitable purpose. Um, you will have restrictions on the extent to which you can engage in political advocacy, because again, you're set up for charitable purposes. And unless your engagement in politics is directly advancing your charitable purpose, you can't be doing it. So a non-profit is much freer to engage in lobbying, for example, to be making extra money through commercial trading. It won't affect, it doesn't have charitable tax exempt status, so it won't be affected by doing those types of things. And it can be set up for broader purposes because we have a statutory definition of what it is to be a charity. So only those bodies that fit that definition get included, which will be some, but not all, non-profits. That's really, really very interesting. And I suppose there's one thing I just want to follow up with that is the idea of charitable purposes. So, but as far as I know, the four categories under the Charities Act 2009, they come from the PEMSEL case. Is that right? That's right. We, we go back to the special commissioners and the PEMSEL case right back in the 1890s. So if you remember back to that case, Owen, uh, all to do with the Moravians, the Moravian church, we had four headings. Yeah. of charity. You probably know those. Um, yeah. <laughs> We're going to turn this into a quiz show. Go on, Owen. We have the advancement of education. Yeah, we'll take that. Health. Advancement of health isn't one of the four. No. Okay, let's... <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have relief of poverty. Yeah. We're going to have advancement of education. Yeah. We're going to have advancement of religion. And then we have the fourth one, which is our catch-all category. Any other purpose, which is beneficial to the community that didn't get caught in the first three. And that common law definition was the definition we used in Ireland right up until 2009 when we created a statutory definition. So what does the Act do? Well, it keeps those four heads. So you will still find reference to relief of poverty and advancement of education and religion. But we go one step further in that we unpack that final head of charity, that nebulous anything else that was going uh, under that head. So we have broken that down and that's where you'll find health. That's where you'll find art and culture and civic regeneration and, you know, reference to research into the sciences. For example, environmental protection, the welfare and, and protection of animals. All of that is found in that fourth head of charity. That's really genuinely very interesting for me. I, I, I think that's fascinating. I like anything that has a and any other business section. In it. And I was going to ask, are there any areas of charities law in particular that you feel need reform? Um, your book mentions that an amendment to the 2009 Act around financial reporting is long overdue. Oh, yes, this has been an ongoing issue for us. The 2009 Act gives the minister power to make regulations so that a charity knows what financial information they have to file every year in their annual reports. 
when the 2009 Act was passed, we had the old companies legislation and we made a decision. We made a policy decision in 2009 that unincorporated charities would do what they were told by the regulator and they would file all their financial information with the regulator. But if you were a charitable company, you'd just do what the Companies Act told you. And that would be fine. They were doing it anyway. It would mean you wouldn't have dual reporting. So that seemed like a really good solution at the time. What we didn't forecast was that company law was about to change. And the Companies Act 2014, because it wanted to facilitate for-profits businesses, it made it easier or made it less onerous for smaller companies regarding their financial reporting. Now, a lot of charities would constitute smaller companies. And all of a sudden, we ended up with this mismatch in that corporate charities had a much lighter regime of regulation that was outside the control of the charity regulator because it was never included in the Charities Act 2009. So everybody realises there's a problem. Everybody has agreed that really, once you're a charity, it shouldn't matter whether you're unincorporated or incorporated, you should have to follow the same rules when it comes to being accountable and transparent about the money that you got. And so we realised we had to amend the law so that we could have the same standards across the board. Now, why is this a difficulty for us? Well, I sat on the informal working group that developed the accounting regulations back in 2015. So we have had regulations ready since 2015. And here we are in 2019, and we still haven't managed to introduce the legislation that would amend the Charities Act that would allow us to have these new regulations come into force. What's the reason, you ask? I would say Brexit probably has something to do with that, because I'm sure in many divisions of life, people are saying our legislation hasn't gone through the doyle because everybody's so busy with Brexit. But charities also don't necessarily excite um, doyle time. They're not something that are seen necessarily as a priority when it comes to legislation, even though, as you said at the start, Rachel, they're everywhere. Everybody's involved. We should care more because it's important. So we are still waiting on this legislation. It means at the moment, because the regulator hasn't used some of the powers it currently has in the Charities Act, that if you're an unincorporated charity, even though you've been filing and being very good and filed your financial reports every year with the Charities Regulator, the public can't see them because the regulator hasn't published them. So we have a very uneven setup at the moment. If you're incorporated, we can see your accounts. But about 50% of charities are unincorporated. Wow. So we have quite a lot. But unless they share those accounts voluntarily on their own websites, we can't see them. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. It definitely is. I think um, you mentioned Brexit there. I think that's been something that's been a bit of a nightmare for us um, in terms of our front list of books. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of authors are kind of eagerly waiting on, you know, a, a couple of amending acts, I think, you know, for the last one. It, it, everything seems to be getting pushed off. So I suppose with Brexit now permeating every aspect of, I, I, I want to say, Irish, Irish life. Um, At least Irish political life. And yeah. Legislative. Um, it, like, is, is it more difficult to operate what you call in the book all Ireland charities against this backdrop of Brexit, I suppose all the uncertainty that it imports? Well, I suppose to be fair, even at the moment, 
we have two different jurisdictions on this one island. We have Northern Ireland and we have Ireland. That means we have two charity laws in force because there is a Charities Act in Northern Ireland and there's a Charities Act in the Republic of Ireland. They have their own charity commission in Northern Ireland. And so if you're one of those bodies that wants to work across the border, you want to be an all-island charity, uh, as you call it, Owen, there are certain difficulties or certain extra work that you have to do because you've got to keep two regulators happy uh, as a result of that. So if we go back to definition for a moment, how we define charities in Ireland is different to how they define charities in Northern Ireland. So what happens if you're the one body and you have to satisfy both parties? And um, that can be very difficult. So to give you a very simple example, in Northern Ireland, it's a charitable purpose to advance amateur sport, just because amateur sport is a good thing to do. So you could have a body like Love Hockey Ireland, which is a registered charity in Northern Ireland. It supports inline hockey, roller skating hockey. But if you come down to Ireland, we don't have advancement of amateur sport as a charitable purpose. So it wouldn't be possible for a body like that to be a charity on this side of the border. So different differences in definition, and we have different definitions of what it is to advance religion. We have different approaches to human rights, advancement of human rights makes it difficult. It also means there's two filing systems. So you might be filing with the Northern Irish regulator as well as the Irish one and having to produce different accounts for them. How do you manage if that's your situation? What happens if you are working on an all-island basis? And this is one of the things we look at in the book. What are your options? So it could be that you set up two separate entities. You could have Oxfam Northern Ireland and Oxfam Republic of Ireland. So you could do two entirely different bodies. You could do a parent body that has a subsidiary in one jurisdiction or the other. So again, two entities. Or you could just have one charity that has a branch in the other place. Depending which option you choose changes what you have to do. And we tease that out in the book to help those bodies see which box they fall into and what are their responsibilities. That's incredibly helpful for, for people you know, who, who do fall into that category of wanting to set up an all-island charity. I imagine I'm... There's a lot of ins and outs that have to be covered, so it's it's good to have someone doing that. And it's better to think about them before yes. you commit yourself, right? Because you don't want to find out the rules after you've already signed up. It's, it's very true, like you said at, at the outset, you know, are you sure a charity is the best vehicle for your, your chosen purpose? And you do have to just weigh up a lot of things before you think I'm definitely setting up a charity. Definitely. And lastly, our, our final question is that we're giving to all of our guests is, what advice would you give graduates who are just starting out on their career in law? Starting out on your career in law is a little bit like being back in secondary school and filling out the CAO form. Because people assume that just because you've done a law degree, you know what you want to do. And any law student who's in final year, and I'm teaching many of them at the moment, will tell you it's just as panicky trying to decide, will I become a sister? Will I be a barrister? What if I have no experience of those two positions? What if I want to do something else? What if I want a real job? So my best advice to students who are starting out on a career in law is to think what excited them as a student. 
I would always encourage students during their academic years to get really good experience over their summers, to take every internship that you can get so you can taste something. Because it's only when you try something that you can say whether this fits with me or not. So taking up all of those different opportunities, volunteering in bodies, makes a difference. And what we see as students progress is that once you get your professional qualification, you're not committed to being anything for the rest of your life. You have a great freedom because law is a discipline. And if you have a good discipline, you're a good communicator, you're a problem solver, you will be welcome in many parts of society, whether it's the private sector, whether it's the public sector, whether it's academia, whether it's in practice. And really the world is your oyster. So I would say go for it. Well, thanks so much, Una. This has been fantastic. It's been really fascinating to listen. And uh, just a reminder for all of our listeners, if you would like to purchase Law of Charities in Ireland, it's available now on our website on bloomsburyprofessional.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And now, a roundup of some of the updates which have been added to our online services in recent weeks. On Thursday, the 14th of November, our monthly Irish property law update by Professor John Wiley went live for subscribers to our property law service. This update, which covers a broad range of issues from co-ownership through to contract formation, aims to keep conveyancing practitioners up to speed with recent developments. November also saw the publication of the 22nd edition of our Irish Employment Law Update. Authored by Tara Murphy, this update contained case notes on a wide range of employment law-related issues, together with a brief explainer on the new Parents' Leave and Benefit Act 2019. There were also the usual case notes and blog content on the new and noteworthy section of our website over the past month, covering a broad range of topics from data protection through to fraudulent misrepresentation. If you think our services could be of use to you, please go to www.bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com to organise a free trial. And that's it from us. Thank you for listening. This has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.